when I left the Navy, uh, I was a flight instructor uh, out in uh, Lemoore, California. We were flying, my gosh, $70 million airplanes, um, taking four, six, eight out at a time. I was flying with students. It was a lot of responsibility. Patrick, welcome. Welcome to Millennial Manhood. Thank you. Um, I, I got to say, uh, very much a pleasure to be on the show. Um, and I, and I want to throw a plug out there. I, I went back and listened to some of your library yesterday. And uh, I got to episode uh, 114 with uh, Jeff Johnston. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow. Um, for anybody listening out there, uh, once they get tired of listening to my voice, go back to episode 114. I'm hoping it's not the one immediately previous to this because that's a tough show to follow. <laughs> um, that to me, uh, that's your magnum opus. That is your Ninth Symphony. That is your, uh, uh, you know, that that episode uh, is what podcasting should be. So I just wanted to get that well, out there at the beginning. It. Yeah. I will, I will make sure to text. I will, I will like cut out a video of you saying that and I will send it to Jeff. Uh, excellent. And, excellent. Uh, no, he's, uh, he's awesome. And, and that was a great episode oh, and the story. he actually had me on his podcast and we had a great vibe on that as well. So, uh, I mean, the story was- for, for somebody with a young son, um, who's in the same industry as Jeff, um, mm-hmm. it just, uh, it, it brought chills, you know, it's the old Saturday Night Live skit. I laughed, I cried. It was better than cats. Um, it, it was amazing. <laughs> well, uh, okay, we'll dive deeper into that. Right. Who are you? Why, why are you? Uh, why are you on Millennial Man? What's uh, the story? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you'd tell me. Now, you know, I, I think that once we got introduced, it was pretty clear that we could and should have a beer or a substitute together and, and just talk about some of the things that, that are out there in, in today's society. Um, I grew up in, you know, my background, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I joined the Navy at the age of 18, went to college, went through flight training in the Navy, you know, saw the world, flew airplanes, went to places that, you know, people would like to avoid going to. And um, when I was done with that, um, I found myself in the wealth management space. Um, through a variety of different jobs until I started my own company and kind of created my own universe, really, where I I work when I want to work. Um, I do the things that I want to do usually. And I feel like uh, I'm in a place now that I never imagined I could be uh, growing up in, in a small town in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, interesting. Small town, Western Pennsylvania. So probably somewhere close to the border there with Ohio and maybe some some West Virginia there. Yeah. Little, little I, further south. I, I grew up in Erie. Uh, I went to school in Pittsburgh. So yeah, that whole, you know, I 79 corridor, uh, that, that was, that was my hood. Mm, Erie, the home of the Erie Otters. Yeah. Minor league, minor league hockey there for you guys. Yes. Thank you, Connor McDavid <laughs> for, uh, for making us famous. There you go. Exactly. Um, I, I played with him on, uh, on like NHL 2k 15 or whatever <laughs> when I need F- fun side story. My now wife, then girlfriend, took me to a Predators game here in Nashville. Yeah. I'd never been to a hockey game. And I remember thinking, okay, on a scale of like one to six or one to ten, if this is a six, I'll come back for another game. Well, it was like a freaking like 5,000. Absolutely. It was just unbelievable. I mean, especially the, the Preds have a reputation for this. But just in general, it was 
unbelievable. Then I, went, I even went to like a playoff game that year, whatever. But I had no idea what was going on besides like, okay, there's a net and there's a little black thing and right. these guys are fighting. Right. So <laughs> what do I, what, what's happening? So I went and bought like NHL 15 or whatever for the Xbox and just played it on the Xbox until I learned the rules. There you go. So, there well, you go, creativity I, guys. I, I mean, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, um, was, was a complete hockey fanatic, uh, from day one, used to get uh, you know the, the old rabbit ears that uh, rotated on top of the uh, of the house to get your TV signal. We used to get mm-hmm. signal from Toronto uh, across the lake, uh, so I could watch uh, uh, NHL Saturday nights uh, on on CN. What is it? C Canadian Broadcasting Company, CBC, something like that. Uh, so yeah, I used to watch the Canadian feeds of uh, of, of NHL hockey, and it got me hooked. Uh, never played. Because mm. and, and the the Canadian folks I talked to about this find this very interesting. But where I grew up, it was the rich kids' sport uh, mm. because ice time is spendy, um, yep. and uh, you know there's not a lot of it, believe it or not, in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, but uh, I always wanted to, and then in my 30s, I said, you know what, I'm not dying never having played in a hockey game. So I started taking some lessons, uh, jumping on the ice. And by the time I was uh, 35, I was able to play in the, the over 35 men's league and not completely embarrass myself. So I did that for a while. It was, it was fun. I mean, that's a, that's a great game. It's, uh, it's an amazing sport. And, uh, you know, I wish I'd taken up a little sooner. Well, there you go. We've got a, we've got a hockey story. There you go. Um, I, I'm pretty sure this is the first hockey story. Good. In All right. many, I want to be the first many something episodes. on here. All right. So, but my original point of growing up in Western Pennsylvania, you know, close to Ohio, close to West Virginia, I mean, that's a very blue collar, like heartland type of upbringing. What was that like, especially at the time you were growing up and how did that shape the way you view the world to the point where you go in and join the Navy uh, when you become an adult? Yeah, I I feel like, you know, the late seventies, early eighties, when I was growing up, that was kind of the time where you were starting to see those changes across you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Indiana, where, you know, they were starting to talk about it in hushed tones as the Rust Belt. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that certainly kind of formed my decision process fairly early that, you know, I, I didn't travel outside the United States until I was 22 years old. You know, uh, we were pretty, mm-hmm. uh, pretty parochial, parochial in, in our, uh, you know, and our travel and our and where we lived in our neighborhoods and uh, I from a very early age was a reader um, so I would read stories about people going other places and I said that's probably what I want to do you know I, I don't think that my future is here and that's it's a hard thing to say out loud because it sounds like you're you know completely uh, taking a crap all over your your hometown which I'm not dad if you're listening I'm not Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I think that fairly early on, you, you realized that the jobs weren't going to be there when, when you grew up. Uh, so you yeah. better find something else to do. Yeah, and it's interesting to be. I think about this a lot living in Nashville because Nashville is kind of this hopping city. Yeah, where everybody and their mom is moving here. Which, by the way, we're full stop. <laughs> um, which is uh, kind of ironic coming from me because I moved here. Yeah, but it. it you know, from 2014 when I moved here, and I had spent some time in Nashville before then, to now, it's almost it's night and day. I mean, they just announced Oracle is moving a headquarter here, so yeah. they're going to develop this whole new section of downtown. And I mean, there's a skyscraper coming up every five minutes. There's this ethos of excitement 
around it and how cool it is to be part of that. And I have such a hard time imagining what it would be like to be part of the opposite. Right. Um, but you don't meet anybody in Nashville who's like, I can't wait to get out of Nashville. It right. just doesn't happen. Right. I will say, you know, uh, I think that the city who got that right, uh, you know, in, in the heartland was Pittsburgh. Uh, I think mm. that uh, they they kind of saw this coming. And if you go to Pittsburgh now, it's nothing like it was, obviously, in the 70s and 80s. This, you know, the steel mills are gone. It's all education and technology. And um, they 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 saw what was coming and, and were ready for it, uh, I think. Um, and, and why everybody else wasn't, I don't know. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's well because change is hard. That is that is a truism. Yes. Yeah, like a change is hard. Why? Okay, we've got this economy that's functioning. We've got you know the way we've been doing things. Oh, let me go ahead and as a politician, think about the political suicide there. Sure. Let me just tell these people who have a living in steel mills that we're going to you know turn their entire lives upside down. Well, you know, it also speaks to and 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 this will actually bring me back to your original question. You know, why 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 I'm on the podcast, um, it, it goes back to how hard it is for people to think about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's a very well-known mental bias that we, we cannot picture ourselves getting old. We cannot picture ourselves mm-hmm. more than, you know, really a few months into the future. Um, and if there's one thing that, that I'm passionate about, um, it's teaching people to use their brains uh, and, and that sounds pejorative, but what I mean by that is, you know, the way we think our brain works, and there's a lot of literature on that, on that these days is not the way our brain works. You know, we, we think that we're very intelligent. We think that we, um, remember things clearly. We think that we have a defined cognitive process that works 21st century global, uh, village, but it doesn't. Uh, you know, our brain was not designed to work in the way we're, we're trying to make it work. So I think that's a good example of that. You know, politicians are people usually mm-hmm. painting with a broad brush there. Um, but, uh, you know, they suffer from the same mental biases we all do. Uh, and, and they do it on television, <laughs> which is, which is kind yeah. of fun to watch sometimes. So how, how would you help people to think? Let, let's talk about that. So the, what, what would be your patented 10 step formula to get you to not oh, be an idiot. Wow. I don't know about patents, but, uh, um, gosh, uh, 10 steps sounds like a recovery program. So we're going to have to work on it the does. name. Let me think through this. You know, I, I think the first thing people need to do is, uh, go back to the books. Uh, and like I said, there's a, a growing body of research right now. Daniel Kahneman comes to mind uh, as somebody who, um, has won a Nobel Prize, uh, actually, um, in, in economics, um, which is funny because he's a psychologist. Um, but um, he's written a couple books. Uh, I think Thinking Fast and Slow is the one that comes to mind mm-hmm. right now. And what he's talking about is how our brain developed from you know people living uh, outdoors uh, as hunter-gatherers uh, and you know, as not necessarily the top of the food chain all the time, how that brain has had to evolve in a relatively short period of time. I mean, if you think about how quickly things have changed for the human race, my son was talking about about it this morning, um, how, how quickly things have changed in the last hundred years. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we were subsistence farmers a hundred years ago, by, mm-hmm. by and large. Uh, and now, you know, do, do you know a farmer? 
Um, you know, I know a couple that's only because my wife, uh, drives to their farms to pick up produce. Um, but that's just an example of how quickly things have changed and how is your brain supposed to keep up with that? Well, the first way is to understand that it doesn't work, right? You know, you have to, you have to admit to yourself that maybe my thought processes are broken. You know, the first step is admitting you Mm -hmm. have a problem, right? Uh, you know, that second step is doing the research and starting to understand some of these biases we have. Um, the book I wrote is specific to investors. Uh, it's called history lessons for the modern investor. There's the plug. And, uh, we talk in there about these, these biases, but it's not just investing. It's everything, you know, everything you do that involves your brain, uh, and the way you process information, um, is old. It's old technology mm-hmm. and we're, we're, we're having to use it in new ways and that can create some problems. So you just stepped on a landmine there with one sentence. Sweet. And that was the admitting the problem part of your thought processes are broken. Yeah. You do realize you're talking in 2021 where everybody has the most perfect idyllic thought process I ever do. created by God. And, and they're willing to share them on social media, which is really nice mm, of them. Yeah. Everybody's a celebrity. There's no regular people left. That's guys. right. That's right. <laughs> Why do you think it's so hard for us to admit that, hey, maybe just maybe the other guy's right? Oh, man. I think that, unfortunately, one of the side effects of social media uh, is to highlight <clears throat> our tribalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when you, be, because all you're getting from social media is more of what you think, right? That's the way the algorithm works. It's, yeah, or it, what, what angers you the most. Right. Whatever you click on. Uh, so it's confirmation bias, um, it's emotions, it's all of those things that I think Kahneman is the one who calls it your reptilian brain. It's the one that kicks you into fight or flight. I think that the more we stimulate that part of the brain, the more we feed it, uh, the more divided, the more tribal we become because we are a tribal race. I mean, humans started out as tribes Um, and the persistence of that, I don't think should surprise us. It's how it's how ingrained and how angry it's turned for people who should know better. Right. I mean, we do have a, mm-hmm. we do have a little bit of evolution behind us now that should tell us that, hey, you know, maybe that guy, just because he's a Giants fan, isn't the worst person in the world. Yeah. Right. But we've taken that sports analogy and we've blown it up to everything. I mean, it goes to politics. It goes to vaccines. It goes to uh, everything now is a political issue. And my my fear and one of the things that I really think has has also contributed to that is how social media makes everything a national issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you go back to what made uh, what made America America, at least in the eyes of foreigners, um, and it was our engagement at the local level. It was how we got together, you know, in the Rotary Club or in the city council, and we made a difference in our little piece of America. And then we kind of let that trickle upwards. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. That, that, you know, at least not in my experience. Now everything because of 
Twitter and and uh, and Facebook uh, seems to be made to be a national issue, even if it even if it's not. Does that make sense? Yeah, I find that so. Yeah, and I find it so interesting because everything is so clickbaity. I'll give you an example, and I was talking to a couple people about this in particular. So, uh, the sprinter Richardson that got caught um, tested positive mm-hmm. for uh, for weed. Forget the weed or or what you think about it, or whether it should be legal or not, or whether it should be allowed in Olympic. That's not that's not my point here. My point here is if you had gotten on social media, which I did, when her ban was instituted, you would have thought, and a lot of articles would have said that there's no point in even having the the races now without her. It's just a it's just a participation trophy, right? You would have thought she is the fastest woman that's ever walked the face of the earth, right? She's not even the third fastest in her competition this year in the world. She's the fastest American, but other runners have ran faster than her this year. Right. That doesn't mean she could not have won gold, but it also means it's not a freaking participation trophy. There are people who are still in the rate, multiple people who are right. faster than she is. Right. What are you talking about? Yeah, so but it, that's that's data, right? And and we we ignore the data that doesn't conform to the the conversation we're trying to put out there. I mean, that's that's social media in a nutshell, right? Well, and it, it's just so interesting because that was just so. That's the moment that I stopped paying attention to the Olympic right. coverage, right? And the commentary because uh because these were some in the, the this was information from insiders who keep track of these things, right? And I was like, oh, okay, so I'm just being manipulated here. Well, you know what they're response. trying to do. Yeah, they're they're trying to round me up so I can the controversy sells. So they're trying to make money off of me. Right. But when I take a step back and I look at the information, it's like, oh, it is unfortunate she is not in this. I have my own personal opinions on whether or not she should be banned for that, but that's irrelevant to this point. Mm-hmm. But but the simple fact that it's not like she was Usain Bolt in his prime where he was literally crushing everybody. Right. It's it's just not the case. She is exceptionally talented. Absolutely. Really, really good. There are other people who are just as talented or better according to their results this year. So that means the 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 specific competition she was going to participate in, it's not a participation trophy. Like just that whole that whole narrative that was happening, again, it's just designed to squeeze as much money out of you for you to keep clip click clicking and you to be engaged and you to be angry. Yep. So th- those ads can be targeted more and more specifically to you, to where you buy some crap that pays Twitter for the time or Facebook or whoever, or Instagram for, for the time that it got in front of you. So it, it, it's, it reminds it me, it reminds me of a saying we had when, when I was flying airplanes uh, and we would all get together and swap stories, uh, you know, at, at the officer's club, the saying was never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you want to, you want to stretch things a little bit. You want to make yourself seem a little bit more interesting to keep people's attention while you're while you're chatting over a beer. It's a natural human trait, and when you take that and 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 blow it up worldwide, that's what you get, right? That you, mm-hmm. you get people making money and monetizing this, and now they're incentivized uh, to not let the truth get in the way of a good story. So, um, yeah, I, well. I, and- and the reality of it is the truth is complex. Always. It, the truth is complex. The entire situation, like the example that I gave, is incredibly complex. And there's a, a greater cultural conversation that needs to happen around just what is, what isn't allowed. Why should it be? You know, what what are the Olympics? Are 
I mean, what do they represent? What should athletes represent? What, you know, what should their rights be, et cetera. I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a million different things on that, but you can't have that conversation when everything's just designed to piss you off. You, you just said a word that I, I think resonates. Uh, and that word is complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does your brain hate more than anything? Complexity. You know, your brain does not want to deal with complex issues. It's got enough going on. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's firing at full capacity just about all the time now uh, because we stimulate it so much. Your brain is looking for shortcuts. Uh, it doesn't want to do the full computation every, every single time. So that's why we buy off on these, these mental shortcuts. Uh, it's why we fall for clickbait. It's why we, you know, th- uh, continue to think that that our thought process is golden when, like we just talked about, we're taking shortcuts uh, all the time. Well, as a financial advisor, so folks listening know I spent a decade in that world. I, I'm gonna I'm there, gonna I'm gonna quote you from again episode 114 uh, on my industry: uh, self righteous douchebaggery. 100. Yeah, percent yeah. I would argue maybe the most self righteous douchebaggerous of all industries. Um. I don't know. Do you agree or disagree with my, with my, uh, assertion there? I, I don't disagree. Yeah. It's now let me make this very clear. It doesn't mean they're not great people in that industry. Um, Agreed. By no stretch of imagination. Am I, am I saying that I am just saying as a whole, it is a cesspool <laughs> of, of just the most egotistical maniacs that have ever existed. Yeah. I'll give you a story. Can, can I go for it? Can I do a story that, that kind of proves your point? Uh, when, when I left the Navy, uh, I was a flight instructor, uh, out in, uh, Lemoore, California. And, uh, you know, we were flying, my gosh, $70 million airplanes, um, taking four, six, eight out at a time. I was flying with students. It was a lot of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I left, I got hired, um, at a, uh, a financial institution to be basically the, the junior broker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the junior broker in the old school was basically the guy or gal sitting around in, in a bullpen, kind of like you saw on, um, uh, what's the name of that movie? Wolf of Wall Street or, or Boiler Room or... Either one of those. Yes. Both of those yeah, are yeah. You're smiling examples. and dialing, man. Smile you're and dial. calling. Smile yeah. and dial, bother people at dinner, pitch them, you know, whatever the, the product du jour is and, and, and move on. And, um, one day the, uh, the, the, uh, branch manager calls down and he says, Hey, come on up here. I want to talk to you. So I go up, I walk into his office, you know, the mahogany desk, the suit and tie, the whole deal, you know, mm. the, the window looking out on downtown San Francisco and the financial district, everything to distract you from the fact that he's a glorified salesman. Uh, exactly. Uh, and he <laughs> says to me, he says, uh, so tell me about, you know, I heard you flew F-14s. I heard you, you know, you were a flight instructor. Tell me a little about, about your career. So, you know, I tell him and uh, he says, wow, well, you know, welcome uh, to the firm. Uh, I just have one thing for you. Uh, my, my wastebasket's full. Can you take that out and, and empty it in, in the trash chute for me? Wow. Power play, right? Yeah. Hey, Mr. Hotshot, uh, welcome to the new you know, job and career that you've chosen, uh, you're starting at the bottom and here's how I'm going to, you know, pee on you and mark my territory. Mm-hmm. Um, I lasted nine months there. Um, and, uh, that was one of the reasons why I left kind of traditional, 
you know, Wall Street wealth management and went the uh, registered investment advisor route because being a fiduciary means you take out your own trash, but you can, you know, sleep at night knowing that uh, you're you're not engaging in that douchebaggery on a day to day basis. That's so interesting. I never worked for somebody like that. Um, like none of my management. I, my management was actually great, um, but who? Um, like I said, that industry as a whole, the the amount of ego could. Oh yeah. It, it's just it's unbelievable. But also, like when you're talking to clients, one thing that I always found interesting, one thing that I actually really despised about the industry, about the job. Um, so I love the building relationship and I have folks who I'm still like friend, genuine friends with that were clients of mine. Like they were clients first, then became friends. Yeah. Then I obviously had friends who became clients, et cetera. But sometimes you're just sitting there talking to somebody and they're talking about like their objectives and goals and what they want to achieve. And then they literally are willing to do not even a single portion of what you're talking about for them to achieve those goals. And I'm sitting here like this, you are like in that moment, I don't have the patience for that. So I just cut, cut them loose. But I'm just sitting here like, this is just the dumbest conversation I've ever had. You, 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 you're, you're on another planet. Yep. How often do you come across that where people's actions are just so contrary to anything and everything that they're talking about that they're wanting to do? Uh, Occasionally. I mean, I, I will say with, with my clientele, um, they tend to have a similar background to mine. Mm-hmm. Very blue collar, uh, very grateful to to be where they are in life, um, and uh, I don't have a whole lot of those conversations with those folks. Maybe new folks coming in the door, and you can usually spot that pretty quickly. There's that kind of glazed over look that they get when you start telling them what they what you need from them in order to actually, uh, yeah. you know weigh in intelligently on, on their life. Yeah. It's very rare for me, but I, I know it happens. Um, and there's a lot of people out there like that who just, they want to get it off their chest that they are where they are. And then they want to tell you where they want to be. And it's completely irrational and unreasonable, but they don't actually want the solution that you could present them. They, they just yeah, want to think- be heard. I always thought that was interesting. They don't want the solution. And that's probably a good way of articulating it. Cause I was in my twenties when I was doing, yeah. doing the gig. So a little bit of a different situation than you. I don't know. How old are you? 47. Okay. So a little bit of a different situation than you, because even, you know, as the most mature, awesome 25 year old, I could have ever possibly imagined to be, if I was perfect in any way, any way imaginable, I'm still a 25 year old at that point, yeah. you know, and my social circle and the people I'm going to have the easiest access to are going to be what? 25 to 32, 33 year olds. Sure. So, but, but I remember vividly, so a lot of it is to an extent, probably the age group that I got in front of, especially early on. Um, but then you'd get in front of, I don't know, even if you get in front of a 35 to 40 year old couple making 250 households and you're like, Hey, you need to, you know, you need to figure out, you need to save a thousand dollars a month. Like the math says you need to save an additional thousand dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And we look through their budget and we look through all their discretion and they've got, you know, 2,500 left over. I'm not even trying to take the full 2,500. I'm just telling you like, Hey, here's the math. And they just can't wrap. I mean, for years they're like, Oh, we just don't know if we're ready to make that step, but they become clients on something small. And I'm sitting here like, how is it possible that you're not able to carve this out? It, it's just not that important to you then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where what you said about the un- inability to see yourself in the future. Yep. 
comes into play because it becomes really important all of a sudden when you're 58 and you're staring whatever you want your retirement to be down, down, you know, down a barrel of a gun. Right. Well, I, I mean, it, it's tough because I think we get a lot of conflicting advice on that. Um, you know, everybody says live here and now, right? That's kind of the uh, mantra. Anybody who's ever, you know, done any type of med- meditation or anything like th- that, they, you know, you want to be present. You want to be in the here and the now. Yeah. Uh, nobody out there is really practicing a meditation where you imagine yourself in, in 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we should. You know, maybe that's my new lead when we start a financial planning engagement is uh, uh, is we do some some meditation where you picture yourself in the future. Uh, it's but that is the problem that that. And again, you know, that's uh, if you understand that your brain works that way and that that's a natural bias, then you can start working through it and say, OK, I, I get it. You know, now I am going to sit down. I'm going to write down what I want to be doing when I'm 75 years old. I've actually done that exercise. Um, And it it is somewhat enlightening. And if you then work back from there, well, now everything else starts to fall into place as as far as, at least as far as goals and objectives. Yeah. What are you, I mean, what are some of your goals and objectives for you, your practice, your family? You know, you left the large wirehouse world. You went independent and, and for folks listening, it's a big deal to go independent because pretty much outside of compliance, like the legal aspects, all the things that bog you down are taken off of you. Like nobody's creating sales goals for you anymore, unless you yourself want to, you know, grow your business at a certain rate, but nobody's breathing down your neck being like, Hey, you need to do this. Or nobody's changing comp on you or nobody's, you know, uh, basically controlling what you can and can't do. So you can have the freedom to do the things you're trying to accomplish in whatever philosophical manner that you want to accomplish them. Mm -hmm. So it gives it it all of a sudden gives you just this unlimited freedom. And, and with that unlimited freedom that you have with a young family, with all these different, I mean, what, what does that, what does that life look like when you, when you pencil out, like, what does it look like 10, 20, 15, 30 years from now, what is that? The, the first thing I'll say about that is I don't have sales goals anymore, to your point. I, I, mm-hmm. I got off that, you know, that achievement roller coaster. Uh, it didn't happen immediately when I went independent because old habits are hard to break. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would sit down and write this very detailed business plan and, you know, what, how much am I going to grow and how much can I count on in, in new assets under management and blah, 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 blah. Um, I stopped doing that because it was making me miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so, so really what the long-term plan looks like is do things that don't make you miserable. Um, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Do things that don't make you miserable. I, I mean, it sounds so, so easy. Uh, and in a way I realized that I am, you know, truly blessed to, to, to be where I am. Um, you know, there was some luck in there as well. Yeah. You know, I, I, my, my mantra really is, it's funny, you know, here comes that word again, but my mantra is for the rest of my life, number one, don't be a douche. <laughs> don't be a douche. Number two, try to do some good while you're here. Okay. And number three, be a little bit better at something today than you were yesterday. And if I keep mm. doing those three things, you know, and, until the lights go out, uh, then, then I'll be, I'll be pretty happy. 
I like that number one. Don't be a douche. We yeah. should we should make that the title and of the episode. We're really screwing that one up. I gotta say, yeah, every every <laughs> time every time I go to the grocery the grocery store and I see the carts left in the parking lot, uh, I'm just like, man, what are, what are we doing? What are we what doing are we as doing? a society that we can't walk 15 feet and put it back so that somebody well, else doesn't have to get it for you? It's the tragedy of the commons. Right. Yeah. It's not my problem, but it's somebody else's problem. That's right. And everybody says it's not their problem. How long does somebody- so- does a society last with that with that outlook? <sighs> I don't know. I think about the greater societal context of what's going on in our country, our world, our planet. I mean, think about you want to talk about thinking about the future. I don't really understand how it's even remotely controversial that we should take care of our planet. How, how is that controversial on a, on a, on a political scale on, on just a, every single human on earth should, should just be able to agree. Like, yeah, we probably don't want to ruin the place that we live. Like that's a pretty, pretty common sense thing. Like, yeah, we got one of them and I hate to break it to you, but if they figure out how to go to Mars or wherever, you ain't going to be on that ship. <laughs> we'll, we'll screw that up too. Don't worry. Yeah, like it's gonna be it's gonna be you know a couple thousand people with the most money, and they're gonna go populate another planet, and you're gonna be on the on the peasant Earth, uh, in in Mad Max swinging chains. So, it, sorry, uh, it looked like you had you had something on your mind. No, no, you, you know, I I think you I think you hit on something there that is the, the devil's always in the details, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what that means to one person can mean something completely different to another. And, and that's been shown really in, in the way people take surveys and how they ask survey questions, right? If you, if you ask the question, should we take care of the planet? Mm-hmm. You're probably going to get something within the margin of error, uh, close to hundred percent of people that would say, yeah, we should probably yep. do that. As you start to drill down and say, well, what does that mean? Well, that's where you start to get the differences. And unfortunately, you know, I think that again, going back to, you know, my team versus your team, and uh, the 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 way we've kind of separated ourselves into into tribes. Um, as soon as there's a chance to take one side or another of an issue, you're going to get fifty percent go this way, and fifty percent. Well, actually, you're going to get about thirty percent go this way, thirty percent go this way, and forty percent in the middle going. What? You know, what, what are you, you guys want- talking about? Why are you fighting? One of my favorite things to do is, um, and I might be giving myself away here, but if I'm in a group and I see that a group is like making a point of some sort, whether it's political or whatever, somewhat in unison, Mm -hmm. I will purposefully start egging them on from the other side just to see like where this conversation heads. I love it. Because I don't really know how I've developed this and it's a constant work in progress, but I'm not really married to any ideas. I know there are exceptions and I probably just can't think of them. And there's emotional things that probably get me riled up. And I mean, like the media manipulation is one of them where mm-hmm. I'm like, how on earth are we this stupid as a species to let these people ruin us um, for monetary gain? So that's probably one where I'm pretty married to it. But I mean, sure, if you can, sh- if you, if, if you can show me a contrary opinion and you can change my mind, you're more than welcome to. But overall, like especially in like the political realm or the social realm, like I'm pretty open to hearing what people have to say. Doesn't mean I have to agree with you. Doesn't mean I have to even like what you have to say. But I'm 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 open to like okay, let's poke the bear and see what's going on there. Absolutely. And it's just it's so interesting to watch people get really pissed off 
once you start poking that bear. And what's scary is I realize in that moment how much power I have over that person because I can just keep them riled up if I wanted oh, to. Oh, yeah. And that's where, like, you know, you start looking at the macro and it's like, is that how they're sitting looking at us in general? They can just keep us riled up? I look at this, uh, my wife and I spend a lot of time in France um, and they've they've got that cafe culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Where love the cafe culture. Cheers to that. Yeah. All about it. Uh, I, I mean, if I, if I go live, if I go live in Spain, and take Kinsey, right. What, that, rile people up. That, well, they, they don't get from what I've seen usually. And I'm again, painting with a broad brush. They don't get as, as aggravated. Uh, but I think that's because they do it so often, right? They're practiced yeah. at the art of having a conversation uh, and disagreeing. And then, you know, shaking hands, kissing each other on the cheek and walking away and coming back and mm-hmm. doing the same thing the next day. Um, yeah. and, and we lost that as, as a culture some time ago. I don't know how we get it back. Um, you know, one of the things my family tries to do is eat around the dinner table and have a conversation every night. Um, you know, not because we have to, but because it's practice, right? It's practice mm-hmm. of sitting down, you know, eating together and talking about things that come up during the day. Um, And I hope that we're giving a little bit of that to my son because he's going to grow up in this, you know, hyper insane social media, you know, maelstrom. And I I need to have taught him how to deal with that uh, before he gets there, I, I think. So let me, let me ask you this. How many kids do you have? Just one. Okay. How old is he? He's seven. Okay. So seven years ago, you're like, oh, I'm going to be a dad. Um, it's probably that moment that you realize that your parents had absolutely no clue what they were doing. And they were just winging it the whole time. <laughs> in uh, that they, moment, they're going to love it when they hear this. I swear. <laughs> well, okay, fine. Not just them. Yeah, My no, parents no, too. Hey, Everybody's yeah, everybody. Parents. Nobody's hey, prepared. Here, here's a human that solely depends on, on, uh, his or her existence because of you. And if you right. don't feed and take care of them, they will die. Right. Good luck. Right. Um, in that moment, how do you realize, oh, crap, how do I not suck as a parent? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. Oh, my God. Um, whew. First of all, my, my, my son was born uh, six weeks premature. Okay. Um, so we spent the first uh, three weeks of his life uh, living in the, the uh, neonatal. The NICU. Or, yeah, the, in the NICU. Thank you, Randall Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon, by the way. Um, they were wonderful. Um, so, you know, I kind of got thrown into it a little bit. A little bit before I thought I would, and it really did make me go back and 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 think about all the responsibilities that that I had with this child. And then you know the 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 problem with the NICU is you're there for three weeks. The kid is constantly monitored. Every mm-hmm. you know vital sign has a has a computer tracking it. And then the day comes where he's reached his target weight. They unplug him and say, "Here you go." <laughs> and you're like. Uh, okay. I, I mean, it scared the crap out of us because we'd take him home and it was, it was quiet. He'd fall asleep and we're like, is he breathing? It, yeah. It, you know, I mean, nobody, nobody prepares you for that. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, gosh, you know, when it happened, it, it really made me look at myself and what I wanted and what I wanted for my family 
and did those things all intersect? Um, mm-hmm. And where they didn't, I, I've tried over time to, to cut those things out. Uh, doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes, sometimes daddy's got to work, right? Sometimes daddy yeah. can't take you to the park. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't want to reach a point in my life where, um, you know, I had sacrificed time with my family just to be, you know, the, the biggest producer on the block or, or the best hockey player or tennis player or whatever it was, uh, was less important to me than, than him. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'm probably oversharing at this point, but what else would you do on, on, on a podcast like yours? Uh, that took me some therapy to, to, mm. to really flesh that out. And if, if there's one thing I could say, you know, since we're talking about millennial manhood, it's okay to ask for help from time to time. I think my generation, especially my father's generation, you would never, never ask for that kind of help. Never. Um, but slowly I think it's, it's gotten to the point where it's okay to do that now. Um, and, and I, I hope that, you know, our generation and your generation, um, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's not even a thing. Like you just, if you need the help, go get it, you know, accept help when it's given, you know, sincerely. Well, and I I think kind of back to you and I are just by the simple fact that you and I were attracted to the same industry probably means that you and I share a lot of similar character traits. Again, back to the self-righteous douchebaggery. I mean, a large ego, you have to have a very, very large ego to believe that let me go into an industry that doesn't pay a salary one. <laughs> so I'm just going to make money and I'm going to figure it out. Right. Two, uh, I'm going, you know, I'm going to be calling people and I'm going to be meeting people and yeah, like you're going to give me this information. And then three, you should listen to me. Yeah. Like that, that, that to even believe you can do that requires a certain size ego. I, I've been doing yeah. this a long time. I still get nervous asking a, somebody for their social security number. Like that just, uh, for whatever reason that, 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 that triggers me. I'm like, wow, that's, yeah. this is a big step. It's so personal. I'm asking you for your social security number, but you know, so intimate. I, I got to do the paper. You don't share that with anybody, <laughs> but, but yeah, like, so, so it, it, it requires that certain level of ego, especially when you're younger. Oh my gosh. Oh, like yeah. When I was in my early twenties, good Lord. Oh, you should have seen my business plan. It was, yeah. it was amazing. It was just, I cringe looking back at myself. Um, and and it it takes some self-development to get to a certain point, but I would make, make an argument that a lot of people never get any form of self-development. Like their ego just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But with that ego, uh, which shout out to Ryan holiday and ego is the enemy. That's a great book. Uh, your ego is your enemy in so many different aspects of life. It's great in a lot of aspects because again, personally, my ego, um, has driven me to a level of income and lifestyle that a lot of my peers will never get to. Right. Um, just simply due to the fact, not even that I'm special or more talented, I'm just willing to try things they're not willing to try. It's that simple. Yeah. Now, on the so that's a positive side. On the flip side of that, it's like, man, I could cut, I could be a self righteous douchebag at 24. My God, I could still be a self righteous douchebag uh, right now at times. They're out there. Um, I am fully, I am fully aware that the Yavitsa who buys a Bugatti and gets a specialty tag 
where it says Yavitsa on it. Yeah. Just so when I drive by you in a $350,000 car, you know it was me. And if I cut you off, you really know it was me. Yep. I know that Yavitsa is there and just needs to be held under control. Like, no need to come out, bro. It's okay. Uh, you know, it, it's... <laughs> You mentioned Ryan's book. There's a there's a there's a book I read recently that brought me back to that whole you know kill your ego thing, which I completely agree with. But sometimes yeah. you forget, um, and it's funny, but it's the inner game of tennis. So I've uh, okay. it, I've played tennis for years, off and on. I've taken it up again recently. Um, and if you know anything about that game, tennis and golf, I think are probably two the the two most mentally challenging sports that you can engage in because Played golf yesterday, I can agree. Yeah. I mean, your ego, what you think you should do on a golf course or on a tennis court versus what you can do, that dichotomy, that discrepancy uh, is what drives people crazy and makes them quit the game, including me several times. Uh, so when I read that book, uh, and having kind of gotten more into a stoic philosophy later in life, um, you know, that was that was very meaningful to me to say, hey, it, you're the first thing you got to do is put your ego away. Nobody cares. You know, nobody cares about what you think you should look like on a tennis court. It's how you perform and it's how you react in the moment. And I, I think that's, you know, I think that's a good lesson that crosses sports. Right. That that is that goes to life. You know, nobody cares if you have the Bugatti. They really don't. They, uh, they really, they really don't. You're, you're right. I mean, it's, it's again, the ego thinking that people care. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you want to hear, you want to hear a quick golf story? I would love to. All right. I picked up golf this year and I've not taken any lessons. I've surely gone off of just pure, like decently athletic. Let me figure it out. Yep. Got some crappy clubs. Yada, yada, yada. And, um, I can smash the living crap out of a ball just by very nature. I mean, so it's a good thing and a bad thing. So here's where the ego comes into play. So a couple weeks ago, buddies and I are in a course, I hit the ball. I mean, it is just the most beautiful shot I've ever hit. I mean, just perfectly right down the middle. It was, I mean, it was like God's hand came down on me and moved my club back. I, and then I have you know, no idea what you're talking about, but go ahead. <laughs> anyway, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was par four. We're all like super excited. We get, I'm expecting this ball to be somewhere around the green. Dude, I can't find my ball if my life depended on yeah. it. Like we were all looking around like, where's my, this was perfectly right down the middle of the, like, where is it? So I end up dropping, I get pissed off, you know, whatever. We get to the next tee box. I accidentally outdrove the hole. So I'm sitting here like, okay, that bad boy went like 340 yards. I'm all about this. Like, yeah. get me on the tour. Oh yeah. Okay. So that gets me really excited. Next thing it, that day goes fine. Next thing that happens over the next couple of weeks, somehow I develop a slice on my driver. Now I'm extra pissed off. And for folks who don't play golf, like a slice is imagine your ball goes straight and then it takes like a 90 degree angle to the right. So you're doing something with your swing. I don't know yet. I need to figure it out. So yesterday we go golfing and I said, you know what? Put your ego aside, Yav. Put the driver away. Yeah. And I hit with my five iron off the tee yeah. <laughs> all day. Yeah. And you know what happened? Went right down the middle, hit the fairway. It didn't go 320 yards. I don't even know if it went 200 yards. But it got the job done every single time, and I had a great time. 
because I put my ego away. Because if I had kept hitting with the with the driver before I figured out how to fix my slice for whatever reason that's happening, yep, <clears throat> I would have lost a million balls. I would have been frustrated. I would have been pissed off. It would have sucked. So yeah, golf is just great at teaching you lessons like that. Like well, and, stop. And, and my wife, um, you know, years ago, uh, put the put the kibosh on this for me. She said, look. You can't go away for four and a half hours. Come back pissed off. And come back pissed off. Like you just yeah. can't. You just can't do that. Yeah. Uh, and she's right. She like why live your why live your life that way? You know why why do that? Uh, and, and I think that that speaks to a bigger a bigger tendency in all of us, right? Uh, how many how many good things are there in the world right now? Right? How many do we talk about on a daily basis? You know, we're we're very consumed with what's wrong. Uh, we focus on what's wrong, and I don't know if that's ego or if that's um, if that's something else, but uh, that that's where we tend to focus. Um, which, you know, the the economist John Maynard Keynes said, uh, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, so, you know, if, if that's the way you're going to live your life, I think you gotta you gotta take a step back and 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 kill that ego and 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 look at the positive and uh, you know just enjoy, you know, because surviving is not living. If we've learned anything from the last year and a half, that has to be it, right? Uh, we, we know that we didn't live our full lives the last last year and a no, half. Not even close. Uh, well, let me, let me ask you this. Yeah. You've got a son. He's, he's going to be a man someday, which means he's going to have a robust ego just by the very, very default. Um, how do you teach him to kill the ego? Well, he's seven and he already pays taxes. So that, that was my first step. Um, I had to teach him that, you know, as, as great as things are and as much as you love your Cheetos, uh, somebody's always going to be there to take you know, a couple mm. of them before you get mm. to them. Now, that's, that's me usually. but uh, Yeah, but go ahead and take half just to teach him. <laughs> you know, you're in the highest bracket, kid. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to take 60% because you're living in California. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. It, it's... Um, yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I, and I think that that's one of the areas that, you know, I look around uh, now having a school-aged child and I look at other school-aged children and how they're parented. And I, I've got some concerns there because I think the ego is out of control, even at an early age uh, with parents mm. who haven't really set any boundaries for their kids. Um, so that's tough to watch because I, I don't know what that manifests itself like in an adult, but I, I don't necessarily want to know either. It's interesting. I've talked about this on the podcast before. So there's, he did not come up with this concept, but he was talking about it. So there's a guy named Garrett Gunderson who mm-hmm. owns a company called, um, the wealth factory out mm-hmm. of Utah. And, uh, he was a financial advisor for many years. Now he's, he's not an advisor anymore, but he owns the company that it's basically like a, almost like a family office type setup. There's a lot of YouTube videos, books, et cetera. And he was talking about his friend and how he plans on doing with this with his kids. So at 16, all their kids have to start a business mm-hmm. and dad will fund the business. Dad will be the business consultant. They will open up business bank accounts. They will be joint owners. Dad's a 1%, 1% owner in the business, mm-hmm. but funded completely by dad, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> and he's going to help them build out this business. And he was talking about his friend. Where one of his sons actually built out a million dollar revenue business. Wow. <laughs> by, by the time he was like 21. Wow. Um, but anyway, the point is you keep growing the business, you keep reinvesting, you keep, you learn all these lessons and then you do that all the way through college. 
And then when you graduate college, you have to buy dad out of the business. And the only way to buy dad out of the business is you have to sell the business completely and donate every single dollar to charity. Love it. And you start over. Love it. And the whole point of it is I'm going to teach you how to do this. I'm going to help you in every way possible. I'm going to fund you. I'm going to do everything. And then I want you to start over from zero. I want you to give up. I don't want you to lose it. I want you to give it up and learn how to give it up. And now you get to take everything you've learned and try again. Instead of me funding you, teaching you, you building it up. And now at 22, you feel like you did this all on your own. I mean, isn't that's, that's life in a microcosm, right? Yeah. You know, uh, as soon as you find yourself being, you know, unconsciously good at something, it changes and you have to go morph into something else. I mean, that's, that's been my experience and that's, that's powerful. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about killing the ego? Yeah. Whoo, buddy. Kill the ego. Kill the ego. I love it. All right. I told my wife we're doing that. I was like, <laughs> So, I, I am so serious. So as a, as a charitable advisor, um, you know, one of the things I've heard of is using a donor advised fund as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't have to be rich to do this. I think a donor advised fund, you can start with $5,000. Um, and you have each of the kids go in every year and choose a charity Mm-hmm. And they have to come and present to the family and say, this is my charity. This is what they do. This is why I think it's, you know, it deserves a grant from the family fund of, you know, Ooh, $200, $250, whatever it is. And then the family votes on them at, at the end of the end of the meeting. And I thought that was a cool idea uh, because again, you're, you're teaching, you're teaching a lot of skills there. You're teaching research, you're teaching critical thinking, you're teaching, you know, business acumen because you got to evaluate each one of these charities uh, mm-hmm. You're teaching responsibility with money, like all those things. They're not going to learn in school. Your yeah. your kid can go to the finest public or private institution. They're not going to get that. They're not going to learn anything about money, uh, and they're not going to learn anything about you know real responsibility uh, other than you know their homework. Uh, so the more you can supplement that, uh, that's one of the big things I've learned as a parent. The more you can supplement their learning, and not in any formal crazy. Uh, tiger mom sort of way, but, you know, just little things along the way, little projects like that, 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 that are going to make them a better human being. That can actually help them think instead of just take a test. Exactly. Again, back to learn how to use your brain. Well, and it's interesting. So back to, uh, uh, Gunderson, another, another concept that I really liked that I learned from him was, uh, the Rockefeller method of passing money on from generation to generation. So, I mean, it's no secret. I'm trying to leave behind a massive financial legacy for my family. I've talked about this on the podcast. The way I see it is that that is my obligation to my immigrant roots. Um, but I don't want to leave behind a whole bunch of money to where, you know, I can have a bunch of great, you know, uh, great Gatsby grandkids. or something. Right. Right. So what the, what the Rockefeller method does basically is there are trusts in place, but you don't have access to that money ever except for under these conditions, education, mm-hmm. medical needs, and you could take loans for the, from the trust for either business ventures or political ventures or whatever. I mean, you basically have to present to the trust and then get approved for a loan and then you owe the money back. Mm-hmm. So you have access to capital, which is such a huge difference in my opinion than just 
having money given to you. Correct. Access to capital can be the difference between you being able to start a business and you not being able to start a business. You being able to buy a house or real estate or apartment building or whatever, and you not being able to. Yep. And and having a family trust in place that allows for that access to capital to me is the most genius idea ever because it's not just giving you money. It's just saying, hey, we're going to lower our underwriting standards yep. because we've got some safe harbors in place that give you opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise to where you don't just get to be a socialite that blows money left and right, but you have easier access to capital. I mean, I right. think about when I was a financial advisor, I'm 1099. Do you know how hard it was to buy a house? I'm over, I'm yeah. over here with tens of thousands of dollars in the bank account. Yes, and I these do. People, these, these freaking people over here are like, are you money laundering from Syria? I mean, they, they want the most ridiculous information. Mm-hmm. You know what I would have given? I would have paid higher interest to be able to go to a family trust and say, give me a loan. Wait a couple of years, refinance it out. Yep. You know, just simple things like that. Or like I said, education or, or, or medical bills. Or, hey, I've got this business idea. Let me present this business idea. Instead of going to a bank and paying interest to a bank, how about I pay interest to this trust? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all kinds of cool, creative ways to where you can create a legacy, where you can create financial incentives and financial independence without creating a bunch of, again, self-righteous douchebags as we go through the, through the theme of the podcast. That's yeah. I hope that's not the title. Um, (laughs) No, don't worry. (laughs) That's, that's how, that's how Apple podcast just crushes, (laughs) crushes the algorithm on me. They're like, nope, nope, none for you. Thanks. Uh, no, yeah, I I think that's a good point because, you know, you learn, um, in, in wealth management that very wealthy families, and I don't typically work with very wealthy families, to be honest with you. Uh, but it is known that, you know, uh, if the Rockefellers, for instance, weren't careful and didn't do things that way, but typically you go, you know, three generations before the money's gone. Right. Yeah. The Vanderbilt's. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, that's the and, best and example. The progression, the the story I remember, or the, the you know the the example is, you know, mom and dad make the money, mm-hmm. their kids are you know professionals, usually doctors, maybe you know something like that, and then the doctors' kids are artists, and then the money's gone. And I'm not, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I'm I'm not picking on artists by any sense of the imagination, but uh, uh, that's kind of that progression of wealth if you don't teach people how to use it correctly. And then the other side of it is if you just give them money and you get the trust fund kids out there, like you said, socialites, and they end up, uh, you know, uh, addicted to whatever designer drug is in the clubs at that time and in rehab, and then they're a disaster too. So that finding that middle road, I think that's, uh, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because again, the Rockefeller and Vanderbilt comparison. The Vanderbilt family was broke within sixty years. Mm-hmm. The Rockefeller family has grown. I mean, I hate when people are like the Forbes list richest people. It's like no, 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 no. The Forbes list richest people who want you to know that they're rich. Right. Yeah. Like the the Rothschilds are not not on the Forbes list. Guys. Right. And and. They make Jeff Bezos look like a poor person. Well, there, yeah. There's all kinds of families like that and institutions around the world that have just ungodly amounts of money. And but but the Rockefeller again example is like they, I mean, the trust gives an ungodly amount of money to charity every year. Yeah, off of the interest earned. Yep. So it's it's just this constant perpetuation of like, okay, here's your privilege. You have access to money that other people don't have access to, but you don't just get money. 
Like they're, you owe this money. <laughs> if you, but, like they will come after you, but think they about, will bankrupt you. And think about what that teaches you, right? It teaches you that you do have a certain amount of privilege. Yeah. And it teaches you that you really shouldn't waste it, right? You're, you're giving two lessons at the same time. And, I, you know, I, like I said, I think that's important. But, but I also think you can do that in a multitude of creative ways without being super rich. Yeah, correct. I mean, even, even if you leave behind a house that your kids end up selling or, or whatever. I mean, the Rockefellers are an extreme example because John D. Rockefeller was the richest man on earth when mm-hmm. he died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it, you can scale that down. It's more. Thank you, Standard I wish Oil. Would, yeah. <laughs> I, I also wish people would understand this when we, when I talk about this or anybody, t- like it's not about the necessary technicality of something. It's the greater, it's the truth behind that story. Think of it as an allegory. Yeah. And, and find the truth within. So, um, Patrick, we're coming up on time over here, so I gotta, I gotta ask you, what I always ask folks. You go back to eighteen-year-old you, oh, wide-eyed, boy. bushy-tailed, Western Pennsylvania, whole bunch of probably, uh, uh, you know, Italians and Ukrainians, and oh, the, grew up around everything. Yep, all all up in them steel mills uh, and coal mines down in in a little further south in West Virginia, and um, you're out into the world. What's one piece of advice you would give yourself knowing all that you know about yourself and just knowing all that you know about life at this point? Uh, the, the one thing that I would tell my 18 year old self is, is the one truism in life. It's the one thing that, uh, uh, that constantly is proven true over and over again. And that is this too shall pass. Mm. Um, you know, when you're, Winston Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. Mm. Um, so that is, that is what I would tell my 18 year old self. And it's not just, it's not bad either. I mean, change happens. Life is cyclical. Um, good times, bad times, you know, try to enjoy it all. Um, and, and realize that, uh, if you're going through a rough period or even when you're going through a good period, this too shall pass. So be ready. Hmm. This too shall pass. I like it. It's so true. I, I guess my my version of that is personally, whenever something is happening in my life, uh, particularly when it's bad, I just say, "Hey, it's just my turn." Yeah, it's just my turn. I'm I'm not the first person that's ever experienced this. I'm, I'm not going to be the last. It's just my turn on this planet to experience this very thing. Uh, yeah, I, you know, going back to that episode with with Jeff. Um, you don't choose your pain, but you choose how you react to it. Yep. Uh, and, but the same thing for the the pleasure, right? You, you know, sometimes good things happen to you. And I've, again, been very blessed. Good things have happened to me. Uh, but uh, that could change tomorrow too. And and that's okay. Yep. Perfect. How can, uh, how can folks get a hold of you? Uh, victoryindependentplanning.com is, uh, is my firm website. Uh, you can email me at patrick at victoryindependentplanning.com. Uh, we're out there, uh, on Instagram history lessons for the modern investor. So check us out. Perfect. And for everybody listening, manhoodpod.com info at manhoodpod.com. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, as always constructive criticism, don't just complain. You got to offer a solution outside of that. We'll talk to you guys soon.